here we go. This is The Skip Bayless Show, episode 32, which I dedicate to the great Jim Brown. If only he hadn't walked away over a contract dispute at age 29, Lord have mercy. But this, as always, is the un-undisputed. This is everything I cannot share with you during the two and a half hour go for the throat debate show known as Undisputed. In episode 32, I will go deep into the demented, delusional psyche of a Dallas Cowboy fan, my psyche. I will tell you how and why I relate on the deepest of levels to what Tom Brady is going through late in his career. I will tell you why I fight and fight and fight so hard defending Baker Mayfield. And I'll tell you about one long ago college football Saturday afternoon upon which I got cured once and for all of my growing gambling addiction. I will give you three new takes on old classic movies that Ernestine, my wife and I, Ernestine, watched on the few days off that I had last week. And ultimately, I will answer more of your probing, provocative questions, and I thank you all for all of the above. But first up, as always, it is not to be skipped. As mentioned above, allow me to take you deep inside the delusional psyche of a crazed cowboy fanatic that is my psyche. Allow me to break down for you the addled, embattled brain of a helpless cowboy fanatic, a, a helpless cowboy zealot that has happened to me through this past August into September. I'm talking about my brain. I'm about to unleash on myself and understand I became a Dallas Cowboy fan when I was 10 years of age, living in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. A diehard St. Louis Cardinals baseball fan, which had made me compatibly a diehard St. Louis Cardinals football fan, because at that point, the Arizona Cardinals played in St. Louis, and they were also called the St. Louis Cardinals. Those were the games we had on television on Sundays. Those were the games I watched. That was the team I came to love. But I had an uncle in Dallas, Texas, by the name of Jim Bell, who coached high school football. I didn't know him well, but he had taken a liking to me and thought I might make something of myself as a football or basketball player. And he called my mom and said, hey, you guys got to bring Skip down to one of these Dallas Cowboy games. The Cowboys were in their second year as an expansion team in the National Football League, playing at the old Cotton Bowl, where obviously Texas, Oklahoma still play. 
And finally, my parents gave in one Sunday and said, okay, let's go to a game. Jim's got us tickets. We'll check it out. And of course, the game I chose was against the St. Louis Cardinals. And down we went, got up very early on a Sunday morning and drove. It was about in those days without the super highways, maybe a four hour drive down to Dallas. We met my uncle. We watched the Dallas Cowboys, except I was watching the St. Louis Cardinals until I couldn't take my eyes off those stars on the shoulder pads of the Cowboy jerseys, as well as on the star of the sides of the Cowboy helmet. Hmm, I got stars in my eyes. The more I watched a little sawed-off quarterback, five foot seven inch Eddie LeBaron operate, he made the Pro Bowl that year for a team that went four, nine, and one. The the first year's team was horrible. It went oh eleven and one. So they weren't very good. The Cardinals were much better. Cardinals drubbed them that day. It wasn't close, it was 31 to 17. But by the fourth quarter, I found my eyes were going more and more to the metallic blue worn by the home team, the Dallas Cowboys. And as we got in the car and drove all the way back home that Sunday night, we day tripped it. I had to be back in my fourth grade class with Mrs. Lowther the very next morning at whatever time it started at 8.30, and I was worn out. I couldn't quit thinking about the Dallas Cowboys. I got hooked. I wound up living through the Don Meredith years, next year's champions. And then I started living for the Staubach years, the Super Bowls, the wins against Miami and Denver, the loss. The first one wasn't Rogers' fault or his doing. It was Craig Morton, but to Baltimore. And then the two losses to Pittsburgh that were what I call moral victories, great losses, two of the greatest games I've ever witnessed, especially the second one, the 35-31 game that I covered in Miami. Those were the days. Then I literally covered wall to wall the Jerry-Jimmy dynasties, or maybe I should say the Jimmy-Jerry dynasties of the early 90s. I wrote three books about the Dallas Cowboys through the 90s, I believe I know Cowboys history as well as anybody alive. I'll put my knowledge up against anybody's. And I saw firsthand the force field that Jimmy Johnson created. Never seen anything like it. It was Troy. It was Emmett. It was Michael. It was Charles Haley. It was something. I'd like to think that my books were written by a very objective Cowboy fan because a whole lot of Cowboy fans didn't love everything that I wrote in each of those three books. God's Coach, The Boys, and Hellbent, my Cowboy trilogy. But I'm proud of the trilogy. And yet, if you told me on January the 14th of 1996, an NFC championship game in which Dallas beat Green Bay 38 to 27 to march on to what became their last Super Bowl. If you told me that day that 26 years would pass until my Cowboys played in another NFC championship game, I would have laughed in your face, not on your life. But that's what has happened.
26 years have passed since my team even made it to a conference championship game. What? 26 years. Year after year, I have fallen into the trap set by Jerry Jones, the off-season trap, the training camp trap of, oh, wait a minute, maybe this is the year. 26 times he's gotten me. He even got me last year. I went head over Jordan's sneaker heels for those Cowboys a year ago. I thought the Super Bowl window was closing fast, but I thought there was barely a crack in it and that the Cowboys would squeeze through it last year. And on national TV, on Undisputed, I jinxed them. I'm convinced I jinxed them because I called them unjinxable last year. I just thought they were too bleeping good. So this year, this offseason, even this training camp, I tried my damnedest not to fall into Jerry's trap. I said, just leave him alone, leave him be. Be painfully objective, be cold-bloodedly objective about all the negatives. Leave them be because watch pots never boil. They don't. They don't boil. You can't watch the pot. And I watched too closely year after year. I waited for it to boil. And the only thing that boiled was my blood. So this year, I said, okay, come to grips with, make peace with all the glaring negatives that so strongly suggested, if not screamed at you, that the Cowboys are going to finish second to the Eagles, the up-and-coming Eagles, featuring Jalen Hurts at quarterback. I'm a big fan. They're a better team than the Cowboys on paper. So I, I, I did. I, I actually made peace with the Eagles are going to win the East and the Cowboys are going to miss the playoffs with, say, an 8-9 record. And I'm going to be okay because I didn't set myself up for such a long fall right onto my face, especially on TV across from the number one Cowboy hater, Shannon Sharp on Undisputed. I, I convinced myself, correctly so, my Cowboys are never going to win with Gerald Wayne Jones Jr. as the owner and the operator and the general manager of the Cowboys. It's, it's not going to happen. I can't get the most infamous Jerry quote out of my brain, out of my psyche. Soon after he bought the team, it was the first training camp. I was there, 1989, Thousand Oaks, California. The great Frank DeFord came out to write a piece Vanity Fair magazine on Jerry, and the infamous quote that Jerry gave Frank DeFord was, pardon my language, I could coach the shit out of this team, said Jerry of the team about to be coached by his quote-unquote good friend from the University of Arkansas, Jimmy Johnson. Jimmy did not love that quote, but Jerry has kept that quote in his heart to this day. And I think that Jerry thinks that from on high, he still coaches the shit out of this team, which often turns to, pardon my language, shit.
in December and January. I convinced myself this team is never going to win with please drop the Mike McCarthy, please drop it, the worst motivational speaker I've ever heard in all my career. It's not going to win with Mike McCarthy as Jerry's do-nothing puppet coach. And then I convinced myself through the offseason, this team is never going to win with middle-of-the-pack Dak at quarterback. I'm sorry, just never. This team is never going to win when it managed through the offseason to actually get worse. No other team did that, but it got worse because Jerry fiddled while Rome burned. Jerry fiddled around and did nothing in the offseason. I could not believe it. I sat mesmerized day after day on Undisputed. Nothing. Nothing. You lose, you lose, you lose. You know who they lost? Amari and... Do I have to, I, I can't even spit the names out. They lost and they lost and they did not add. And then I'm saying to myself, stand convinced you cannot win with an aging offensive line and now obviously a rookie starting at left tackle in place of Hall of Fame bound Tyron Smith. It's just not going to happen. I convinced myself that you can't win with a defense that just got lucky last year and led the league in turnovers. Those are just mostly luck, and nobody ever repeats leading the league in turnovers. It just doesn't happen. And finally, I convinced myself you're never going to win with a team so poorly coached that it not only led the league in turno I'm sorry, in, in penalties through the regular season, it set a franchise record for penalties in a playoff game in the playoff loss to San Francisco. Never going to win. Then, I can't believe I'm saying this, but right on schedule, it started happening again, and I couldn't stop it. I, I guess it started with the second preseason game. I watch every snap of every preseason game. I just suck it up and soak it in and try to process it, but I was trying to be objective. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Cavante Turpin leaps off my TV screen. I'm talking about leaping. I'm talking about kickoff return for touchdown. I'm talking about punt return for touchdown. I know Cavante Turpin playing against my Sooners when he was at TCU, thorn in our side. What is he, 5'8"-ish, 165, 70 pounds? He is a blur on my TV screen. And I knew him from the USFL on Fox because all he was was the MVP of the whole league as a receiver. How can that happen? Because he's that good. And guess what Jerry had done? Very quietly, with no fanfare, he had signed Cavante Turpin, as Shannon Sharp is now calling him Turpin Time. I'll take that. I think Turpentine is going to change my life. He's going to add voltage to my return game that hasn't been there in decades since Dion played for the Cowboys. He's going to add electricity, quick strike, lightning strikes to my offense as a receiver because he was the USFL MVP. And then boom, boom, speaking of John Madden, here comes 
the Madden simulation for this NFL season. And guess what? It simulates that Dak Prescott is not just going to win MVP. He's going to run away with the MVP. He's going to shatter records, says the Madden simulation, while running away with MVP. And I'm starting to think, wait a second. And the Madden simulation has my Cowboys making it all the way to the NFC Championship game for the first time in 26 years, losing to New Orleans, but still making it all the way to the championship game. And I'm, I'm starting to think, you know. And then I start watching the first rounder, Tyler Smith. Mel Kuyper didn't love him that high in the draft. Thought he was more of a third-ish rounder. Todd McShay, same. None of the draft experts like the pick, way too high. And I'm watching him maul, and I'm watching him ball, and I'm thinking, wait a second. Wait a second. This kid is fearless. This kid is huge. This kid's got long arms. This kid has a nasty personality that translates into, I, I ain't afraid of no edge rushers. And all of a sudden, he's starting at left tackle, and I'm, I'm not afraid anymore. And then my man Shannon, across from me at the debate desk, the number one cowboy hater, started insulting and ridiculing my guy, C.D. Lamb. And I responded by saying, Shannon, not responded, maybe I blurted, C.D. Lamb's going to turn into a top five receiver this year. I honestly believe that. I think CeeDee Lamb is special. I think the decks got cleared because Jerry and the coaching staff believe he's very special. Amari was given away to the Cleveland Browns addition by subtraction. I believe CD's about to explode into superstardom. I watched every snap he took at the University of Oklahoma because I'm a fan. Special. He was all Jalen Hurts had Jalen Hurts one year. He was special with CD Lamb. He's going to turn into a lion in the NFL. Just watch. A lion, just like Micah Parsons says he is. A Nittany Lion from Penn State. We already know about Micah. He's, he's dead set special. We are honored to have Micah starting next Tuesday on Undisputed, every Tuesday on Undisputed, to talk about what just happened and what is about to happen. My man Lil Wayne loves him some Micah Parsons, and trust me, my man Lil Wayne hates him some Dallas Cowboys, as he calls them, the Cowgirls. Okay, I'll accept that. But all of a sudden, Wayne fell for Micah. On his birthday last year, Wayne went out of his way to take a road trip, a birthday trip to Dallas for a Monday night game against Philadelphia just to check out Micah in person. Wayne had Micah out here to Southern California to his home just outside of the Los Angeles area for a couple of days just to hang out. 
Wayne's mesmerized. Wayne thinks that Micah is very special off as well as on the field. And I'm taking that to my bank. I believe he's going to win Defensive Player of the Year. Nearly won it last year. Defensive Rookie of the Year, obviously, but nearly won Defensive Player of the Year last year. If they utilize him correctly, I think he could lead the league in sacks with 20-ish. I think he's going to be the most devastating defensive force since Lawrence Taylor, and that is a mouthful. So I, I, I got two special players. I got one on offense and one on defense, and I, I didn't even mention Dak or Zeke. By the way, speaking of Zeke, I believe he's going to turn back into all caps, Z-E-K-E, -E, all caps. His yards per game rushing have gone down consistently every single year since in his rookie year he led the league at 108 a game. Every single year, down, down, down. He led the league in rushing his first three, 108, 98, 96. Then Jerry paid him. Then it's possible Zeke semi-retired, didn't take care of himself. And all of a sudden, I saw Zeke the other night in this new ad. I think it's for FanDuel. I can't remember. But it's Kevin Hart, Master of the Universe ad. How you doing, Kevin? Miss you, man. Zeke looks the best he's looked since pre-the Ohio State. He finally got himself in shape shape. This is the equivalent of a contract year for Zeke because if he doesn't deliver some goods this year, he is gone, gone. I think he's going to deliver. I'm, I'm going to say 80 yards a game. I'm going to say the Cowboys get back to doing what they do best, which is running the football down your throat. Tyler Smith can flat out run block road grade. Trust me starting to like this offense more and more. So, I, I'll admit it, late August into September, I, I got stars in my eyes. I, I must admit it, I forgive me for this, but I've fallen helplessly right back into Jerry's trap again. I, I do believe that the Cowboys are going to do what, what I would have thought even a month ago was the impossible. I do believe they're going to make it to their first NFC Championship game since the 1995 season. I don't think they're going to lose that game to New Orleans. I think they're going to lose it to Tom Brady. More on him in just a moment. But I got him going 12-5. and five. I got him having the greatest season since the 1995 season. I have very possibly gone completely over the edge into Cowboy Delusion once again. But I believe everything I just told you without all my cowboy love and heart and soul. I'm going to save my ultimate prediction for the very end of this episode 32. But suffice it to say for now, 
Jerry Jones has me by the, well, the eyeballs. Speaking of uh, Thomas Edward Patrick Brady Jr. Obviously we have been bombarded with reports about Tom Brady having trouble in paradise. Home is not so sweet these days, say the reports. His wife Giselle, obviously, she's wanted him to retire for what, five years now? Badly wanted him to retire this year. He did for a while, for 40 days. I sat right here in this very chair, one of my early podcasts, and I poured my heart out to you about this cannot be. This is a crime against nature. Tom Brady, playing as great as he's ever played in his life, cannot retire. He cannot waste so much left in that tank of number 12s. Cannot. And he did not. He came back, just as I predicted he would, because he's nowhere near ready to call it quits. I hear people say, I quit while you're ahead. No, you, you, you quit while you're ahead when you know you're lucky to be ahead. No, no, Tom wasn't lucky last year. He just got voted by NFL players as the best player in all of football last year. Last year. Last year, he was graded the best quarterback in football by Pro Football Focus. Number one in the regular season last year, Tom Brady. Quit while you're ahead? That means you see the end coming quickly. You see the light at the end of the tunnel and it's the proverbial oncoming trend. No, Tom just sees light, like heavenly light, like I'm going onward and upward. I have, as he said, unfinished business. He scored 24 unanswered points against the eventual champion Rams last year in a playoff game. And then his defense broke down. A blitz was called and some players didn't get the call, such as Sean Murphy Bunting, who started a blitz, then stopped and let Matt Stafford stand unchallenged in the pocket and managed to throw to a decoy receiver at that point, Cooper Cup, who was just jogging down the middle of the field as a distraction and jogged right past Antoine Winfield Jr., the buck safety, for the catch of the year in pro football that set up a walk-off field goal and on the Rams went to the NFC Championship game and on they went to the Super Bowl and trust me, it ripped the guts out of Tom Brady. Unfinished business, he's coming back to win an eighth Super Bowl, and I believe with all my heart and soul, he will. I believe with all my heart and soul, he'll be the MVP this year. Heck, I believe Thomas Edward Patrick Brady Jr. 
I believe he'll play until he's 50 years old. So here's the point. I don't know exactly what's going on in Tom's household because I'm not sure anybody does. He is scheduled, obviously, to be our teammate here at Fox when he finally hangs him up. Could be a year from now, could be five years from now. But because of that, I, I have no inside information, none whatsoever, only watching from a distance. All I know for sure is this. I know what goes on inside my household with me and my wife, and it's not always pretty, and it's definitely not ever easy. And I just know how I relate from a distance in so many little big ways with what Brady's going through late in his career, his football career. As he said the other night on his podcast, hey, I'm 45 years old and, excuse my language again, I, I got a lot of shit going on. I know the feeling. I am relatively Brady's age in my profession. And I got a lot of shit going on, man. A lot. You have no idea. Seventeen years ago, I told my wife on our first date in New York City on 2nd Avenue at a little pizza place, I told her that night, first date, first 15 minutes, because I had a feeling. I said, hey, if this goes anywhere, just understand, you're always going to be number two to my career because it's, it's my life. It's my passion. It's my reason for being. It, it's all in the end I really care about is my career because it's not work. It's not a job. It's me. It's who I am. She didn't love me saying that. She despises me saying that now, but it's just the God's truth because I told her the God's truth. She likes to say now, well, at least I became 1A, and she did. She became 1A and I love her with all my heart and soul. I wouldn't be the same without her. I wouldn't, but trust me on this. If push came to shove, if, if she pushed me to choose, me or it, choose her, choose my career, I'm choosing my career. I'm sorry, I just would, but I told her that straight up, eye to eye, to start with, 17 years ago. I've been hard on her, and I'm still hard on her. So I took two separate weeks off this summer. One earlier, one just last week, took four days off. So we had some time together. It, trust me, with Ernestine, the greatest thing I can tell you about her is not one second with her have I ever been bored. Not one second. That's how much she means to me. She would die for me, and I would die for her, but I, I wouldn't give up my career for her. 
man, she defends me. She'd lay down her life for me. But we have the time together, and it was great time. I'm going to talk more about it in just a second, but you get a little spoiled. I'm sleeping in. I'm not getting up at 2 a.m. We're staying up late, watching movies, talking, hanging out with our little daughter, Hazel, our little Maltese, now five years of age, sleeping in between us on the couch. And at one point she says, hey, you know, why don't you think about retiring? You know, she says, you, you got plenty of money. We're, we're good. You've done all you set out to do. All the critics said you'd come to LA at FS1 and you'd fail. Wouldn't work. Look at you now. It worked. You did it. Congratulations. Why don't you enjoy it? Why don't you, why don't you just smell the flowers for a while? We can do this, we can have this kind of fun every single night. I, I wouldn't even let her start the conversation. She, she says to me, hey, don't, don't they say you're the goat too? You're the goat of televised sports debate? Yeah, I, I hear that. I, I don't even want to go there. I don't want to start because I'm not going to stop. I told her, I, I don't even want to hear the word retirement because I associate it with death. It's the first step toward death is retirement to me. I play some golf, but, but I, I play it while I'm working. I play just enough to keep me barely happy. It's my little safety valve, just a little bit. Maybe a Tuesday, Thursday, I play a little bit of golf. Maybe it's just nine holes, but it's enough to keep me afloat psychologically. I don't want to play golf every day. And we still have our date night every Friday night without fail. And I look forward to it. But I would not look forward to date night every night. I'm sorry, I just wouldn't. I'm not ready to stop. It would be a waste for me to stop. I, I leap out of bed every weekday morning at 2 o'clock in the morning Pacific time. 2 o'clock. It's already 5 o'clock in the east. They're up. I'm up and I'm firing on all cylinders, and I'm getting ready to jump on the treadmill at 2.30 a.m. until 3.30. I do it every single morning without fail because I love it. I prep my ass off every single weeknight, starting with Sunday night through Thursday night. She knows, she hates it. I can't be bothered. Tom Brady's home watching film as we speak probably. This is what I do. My, my night starts at, at say, it's, it's around 4 o'clock Pacific time, 7 o'clock New York time. I'm reading the, an, a, a list that we have put out for the show. I'm selecting topics that I think Shannon will be great at. And we're having our call. We're putting the show together. Then I'm researching. I'm thinking. I'm plotting. All the debates get won the night before said that a million times. I don't want to give this up. I'm on fire for it. I've never been happier doing it. Why would I stop now? It would be a waste. All my experience, all my knowledge, all my know-how, why would I why would I just trash it all of a sudden? 
Why would I leave it all behind? And that's what I think of Brady. How could you stop now? They voted you the best player in football. They graded you the best quarterback in football. I get it. He's, he's got issues I don't have. He's got a son by the previous relationship who's 15 years of age and playing freshman high school football. I get it. He and Giselle have a son who's 12 years old now and playing sports. Daddy, can you come? Daddy. Little Vivian, nine years old with Giselle. I don't know what all she does. She might have games to attend, soccer games. I don't know, recitals. Who knows what's going on that he's missing? He gives them all he can in the offseason. I think it's a lot. And he gave them, I believe, 11 days off right in the middle of camp. It was a planned absence. I'm just assuming, no inside knowledge, I'm assuming he just told Giselle, I, I, I'm going to take a break I've never taken. This was unprecedented. I'll give you 11 days off right smack dab in the middle of camp before the kids go back to school. But then I got to go back. And, and maybe that sent Giselle over the edge just the way it almost sent Ernestine over the edge for me to have those days off through the summer. It's like you get spoiled. Man, we could do this every day. You could be here all day, every day. And Tom's like, yeah, but now I got to go back. Unfinished business. It's who I am, what I do. Tom plays a little bit of golf, but he's not obsessed with it. It's not going to scratch his competitive itch. I mean, why would he stop now? He's a treasure. He's the rarest of rare. I've mentioned this before, but I have a quote up on my refrigerator door. It's from a way back when Supreme Court Justice, weird name, great quote, Felix Frankfurter was the Supreme Court Justice who said, anybody who's any good is different from anybody else. Tom Brady has shattered every mold. He's just different. Shannon Sharp, Hall of Famer, other Hall of Famers I know, Eric Dickerson, uh, Derek Brooks, I, I know dozens of them. They just can't wrap their mind around Tom Brady being the greatest football player ever because it's hard for them to even consider him a football player. It's like he's playing some game that's above it all. The refs protect him, he gets rid of the ball in 3.1 seconds. He doesn't get touched. He gets rocked every once in a while, but that, in, in the Hall of Famer's eyes, he doesn't get touched. He could play forever. They resent it. They all had to stop at 35-ish, Shannon, 35. I came up in this business thinking quarterbacks never make it past 38. That seemed to be the line of demarcation. 38 and you're done. You hit the wall, the QB wall. Brady's 45, playing greater than ever. I think he's going to win the MVP. Why would he stop now? I, I get it, the, the kids, but you, you just do the best you can because they, they have to realize daddy's doing something nobody's ever done. And he's, he could keep on doing this at this level. So why would you make him stop? I know Giselle had issues with concussions. This is four or five years ago. 
from what I hear, what I know, he's fine. He's had some before, but he's fine. Brain's working just fine, as far as I know. And even if it weren't, even if there was some fear factor, I think Brady's going to keep playing. What did his father say once upon a time? This is a while ago. They're going to have to put a straight jacket on him and drag him off the field. I don't think it'll get that bad. But he's going to play until he senses finally, I can't do this at this level anymore. And he does not sense that. As far as I know, he's 1,000% healthy. And because he and his trainer have discovered this pliability, he's beating the system. There's never been anything like him before. It, it, it's such a treasure that I think of Sunday night at Dallas, the goat against the Cowboys. I, I'm thinking of five-year-olds watching him play. And if through modern medicine, some of those five-year-olds live to be 100, 102, 103, 4, 5. It's very possible that 100 years from Sunday night, they could be saying, yeah, I, I saw Tom Brady play. That's impossible. You saw him play? Yes, I saw him play. What? Oh, he played until he was 45, 46, 47. Who knows? 50. It's who he is. It's what he does. It's why I relate on my tiny little level to what he's up against. I get it. I abuse Ernestine in our relationship. I don't show her enough affection. I don't pay enough attention from day to day, Tuesday to Wednesday to Thursday. Now I'm doing this podcast. I'm obsessed. She says, my God, now you're working on your podcast on Monday night and all Tuesday night, and you're staying up past your quote-unquote bedtime. You're doing podcast all the way until 10 o'clock when you used to go to sleep at 9 o'clock and get up at 2 o'clock. Five hours becomes four hours. I do. I'm obsessed. I'm possessed. And I love it. I wouldn't be happy if I weren't doing this. I don't believe Tom Brady would be happy if he knew he could play football at the highest level and he stopped for his family. And I know some people can't, can't comprehend that concept. Family should be above all. I, I get it, unless you're that guy. God bless you, Tom. I get it. Let's go to a question from you, from the audience. Let's go to Victor from Knoxville, Tennessee. Hmm. Why do you defend Baker Mayfield so much? Because nobody else will? Maybe because I sank a lot of my pride pre-Baker draft into the fact that I believe he should have been the first player picked overall in that draft, and he was. And I believe I was proven very right when Baker was a raw rookie in Cleveland. And for an 0-16 team, he started, what, 9, 10 games? He won seven games for an 0-16 game, a, a team the year before. Won seven games as a rookie. My partner across the table jumped on the bandwagon. Starts saying, shake and bake, baby. Loved him some Baker. And then Odell happened. 
And the more Odell happened, the sicker and more furious and more offended I got. I'll be honest, with Baker, a lot I don't like about him personally. He can be smug, he can be smarmy, he can get full of himself, over arrogant, condescending. I don't like all that. I just believe he can play in this league at a high level. I believe you can win playoff games with Baker Mayfield because he took Cleveland to their first playoff win at Pittsburgh. Their first playoff win since 1994. He did that. The Odell predicament drove me crazy because Odell got to Cleveland and didn't want to be in Cleveland. He wanted to be in New York. He's a big Apple guy or a Hollywood guy, as we saw last year with the Rams. Didn't want to be out there in Cleveland. And he started getting hurt. He had three different surgeries while he was in Cleveland. Baker loved him. I think he loved Baker. They just didn't click. Odell was never right. He was basically a shell of himself. And the more Baker tried to force the ball to him, the worse it got in Cleveland. And when finally Odell went down with his biggest surgery, the big ACL rupture at Cincinnati, 2020, here came Baker. There went the Browns. Finished on an eight and three run, won that playoff game. Baker was outstanding, QBR of 91 in that game. And everybody was back on the bandwagon. But then here we went again, 2021, Odell, Baker gets hurt in the, the week two game as he was leading the whole league in passing percentage of completion. Busts his shoulder, fractures it, tears the labrum, tried to suck it up, gut it out, and play through it. Odell was never quite right. Odell's father posts all the bad throws from Baker to Odell, trying to defend Odell, and Odell has a billion defenders. Odell's LeBron asked me. I talk about all the blind witnesses for LeBron. There are a bunch of blind witnesses out there for Odell. Players love Odell. And players, many of them turned on Baker Mayfield. It's Baker's fault. No, it's not Baker's fault. It's, it's both their faults. They're both beat all to hell. They're just not right. The, the Browns flat out cut Odell Beckham Jr. Think about it. they They cut him. It was not Baker's fault. Baker can flat out play. Baker's about to show you how he can play. As I've said before, Baker took a pay cut to choose to go to Carolina because he loved it that they were ranked through the offseason the 32nd and worst team in the NFL. Oh, watch this. Coverage not bare there. He knows. He walked on at Carolina, just as he walked on at Texas Tech, and he walked on at Oklahoma where he won the Heisman Trophy. He walked on to Carolina, and he won the job. And here he goes. And he, now he's put out these T-shirts. I don't love them. I don't love them because the problem with Baker, the T-shirts say unleashed. He's off the leash, the leash that Stefanski put on him in Cleveland. I, I don't like that. You don't need to be pointing fingers back at them. You don't need to make this revenge and spite. You just need to go play like I know you can play like we've all seen you play. People despise Baker Mayfield in large part because of those progressive ads. They were smarmy. 
they were hard to stomach and they were relentless. Every other commercial watching the game is Baker's house. Baker's doing this, Baker's doing that, Baker's doing this and that. And finally, thankfully, he's out from under the progressive ads because they don't want Carolina Panther on the progressive ads. Progressive based in Cleveland, loved them some Baker to a fault. Baker loved the money to a fault. He probably made enough to last a lifetime and painted the target bigger and bigger on his back the more the commercials he did. So I wish he hadn't tried to market these commemorative off-the-leash t-shirts, but that's Baker. The only thing I fear about him is when, when he's hopeless underdog, he is all-time great. But once he starts to win, his ego starts to inflate. And it, it, he just trips over his own ego. He can't get out of his own way. He's better as the hopeless underdog. I, I don't love the t-shirts, but, but I do. I'm going to continue to defend this guy. I don't like him, but I love him as a quarterback. I do. I think everybody should love him as a quarterback, and he's about to show you why. Victor from Knoxville. Okay, now, in honor of the start of football season, college and pro, And for the many people who gamble on football, college, and pro, it's time for a flashback to the day I made the last real bet I ever made. Day that will live in infamy in the deepest recesses of my psyche. It was the college football Saturday, my junior year of college at Vanderbilt University upon which I very nearly had to call my mother and ask her for lots of money I don't think she had at that point. Today, as you well know, on Undisputed, I bet cases of Diet Mountain Dew against my frenemy, Shannon Sharp. But that's all I bet, just cases of Diet Dew, an occasional dinner here or there. None of this ever gets paid off. It's fun, but it's only fun. I'll get more into that in just a moment. But the point is that on October the 27th of 1973, I bet the last penny I ever bet on any kind of game, because that's when my short-lived, though very dangerous gambling career ended. I believe I was a very potential problem gambler, but it ended that day, thank God. This all started my first couple of years at Vanderbilt. I had a close friend back home in Oklahoma City who eventually became a bookmaker, who at that point knew a bookmaker in Oklahoma City. So when I was home from Vanderbilt, holidays, Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's, I started betting on college football games through my friend to this bookmaker. And in those days, trust me on this, betting with a bookie to me 
was was extremely illegal, and it, it almost felt like I was robbing a liquor store. At least in my my head, that's what it felt like. But I found right away, I was pretty good at picking winners against the point spread. I won far more than I lost, but I was betting extremely conservatively. And by the way, for the record, I was betting only my money. This was not daddy's money because I didn't have any of daddy's money. By that point, my father had left home, left my mother in a lurch as she fell deeper and deeper into the same bottle my father was drowning in. She had tried to take over the little barbecue joint, little hole-in-the-wall barbecue restaurant that they tried to run on the south side of Oklahoma City called the Hickory House, and it was failing. Sometimes we'd have a little bit of money, and sometimes we would have no money. Trust me, it came and it went. But I always worked for my money. I always worked at that Hickory House restaurant since I was five years old, every holiday, every summer. And then as I got deeper into high school and then into college, I worked every day of every summer. I work. It's what I was born to do. It's what I continue to do. I work. So I'm betting, remember, my money. The only way I, I was even able to attend Vanderbilt was that I, as I've mentioned before, I won a national competition for what's called the Grantland Rice Scholarship. It is a complete full scholarship. It's room, it's board, it's tuition, it's books, it's everything for all four years. And whatever spending money I took with me to Nashville for the school year I had made in the summertime. I'm not sure if my mother had any money at all. Not much, if any. So, occasionally at Vanderbilt, I made a few bucks betting on football. But it wasn't until my junior year at school that I made friends with a guy who lived at the Phi Delta Theta house, Phi Delta house we called it, who was kind of a runner for a local Nashville bookmaker so you could make bets through the guy at the Phi Delta house to this bookmaker, and then you could go collect your winnings from him, or he would collect your losses from you. So one Saturday, I got pretty full of myself, and I flat out plunged. I was on a little bit of a roll, and I bet 50 bucks a game on five games. And trust me, at that point in my life, given my wherewithal, 50 bucks was like betting 1,000 bucks today on five games. And of course, you know what happened. I went five for five and I was the toast of Tower One. That's where I lived in a dorm room on the top floor, the 14th floor. I was the toast of the tower. I strutted my stuff. I gloated. My friends, my fraternity brothers, that they all thought I was just some spread-busting wizard of a game picker and gambler. So that Monday I picked up my winnings. And of course, 
I started to study the spreads, the game lines for the following Saturday's game. Games, uh, obviously, because I, I was hot. I, I was, at that point in my head, invincible. I was a sports genius. On Friday, I called up my contact at the Fidelt house and I plunged. I bet $100 a game on five games. Way in over my head. And as fate would have it, I wrote columns for the school newspaper at Vanderbilt called The Hustler. And I was scheduled on Saturday, Friday night actually, to go down to Oxford, Mississippi to cover the Vanderbilt game, football game at Ole Miss. We were 14 point underdogs. And I looked at that spread and I said, that is my lock of the week. I cannot lose that game. My Commodores at home the previous Saturday had just beaten Georgia, Georgia, by four, I think it was 18 to 14, to move all the way up to four and two. And by the way, Ole Miss two weeks before had lost, albeit at Georgia, been shut out 20 to nothing by the Bulldogs. So I'm thinking, I got this. On Friday night, a close friend of mine, <clears throat> excuse me, a fraternity brother, who also pitched for the Vanderbilt baseball team named Jim Hibbett. We took his car, he had an old Corvette, and we drove from Nashville to Memphis. We stayed overnight in Memphis at a very cheap hotel or motel. And we drove on down the hour or so to Oxford on Saturday morning. So as fate would also have it, the, the other four games I bet on all concluded just as my game was scheduled to start later in the afternoon. So I knew pretty much my fate at that point. And of course, as you might've guessed, I lost all four of those bets. And of course, my Commodores trailed 24 to zip, 24 to nothing heading into the fourth quarter in Oxford at old Hemingway Stadium. I had a press pass, I was sitting in the press box and I couldn't take it anymore, so I made my way all the way down to the field, walked onto the field and I wound up standing, sometimes kneeling, just beyond the back line of the Vanderbilt end zone, watching my fate unfold before me, often staring down into the grass, thinking, what was my mother gonna say when I called and asked for this money? Our quarterback that year was named Fred Fisher. He was a bit of an undersized overachiever from Nashville, but he was a Nashville high school legend at Montgomery Bell Academy. I knew Fred well, loved him, great guy, real battler on the football field, real competitor. And he was still fighting his tail off down 24 to nothing, even against the Ole Miss backups. With eight or so minutes left, he threw a touchdown pass and it's 24 to seven. Got the ball back late in the game now I'm down on both knees, just beyond the back line of the end zone, watching Fred Fisher drive my Commodores up the field against the Ole Miss backups. I didn't say a prayer because I don't believe in praying for that. 
but I'm looking up to the football gods to please give me some kind of break here. And God bless Fred Fisher with 105 left in the game. He had a tight end named Barry Burton with a strike right on the back line of the end zone, 13 yards for the 24-14 touchdown. I was petrified, I was horrified. My heart was in my throat. And when Barry Burton hung on and got both feet down in bounds, like five feet from me, I, I nearly collapsed. I have never in my life been more relieved watching any game I've ever, ever watched than that game, that moment. Vanderbilt had covered. It was the all-time ultimate backdoor cover because they really had no business. The right way to bet that game was to bet Ole Miss. And I sat there thinking, I nearly just lost $550, including what they called the vigorish, the 10% that you owe the bookmaker. And even though I had won $250 the week before, losing $550, making me minus $300, my mom wouldn't have been able to fade that one. I, I don't know what I would have done. Maybe gotten a leg broken, an arm broken, hand broke. I, I don't know what I would have done. So on that four-hour drive back from Oxford to Nashville that evening, I was numb. I was shook. And all I could think about was I'm never going to bet another nickel on another game. And to this day, I have not. I believe I was the classic potential problem gambler. Classic. I'm obsessive compulsive. I'm intensely proud. I'm insanely competitive. I was classic. I was in for it. And God was good. Because I soon segued into a profession that allowed me to scratch my gambling itch by betting my pride in newspaper columns and on radio and ultimately on national TV. I have made thousands of predictions, public predictions, just betting my pride, just opening myself up to potential shame and ridicule, which it can hurt almost as much as the money. But I, I had my outlet. I could bet my game-picking male ego against other male egos live on radio and then live on TV. And then it's Shannon Sharp six years ago as we began Undisputed. First day out, September 6th, 2016. Shannon Sharp says something like, hey, you like Diet Mountain Dew. I do. It's my one vice. I admit it. So he says, you, you like Diet Mountain Dew. I, I'll bet you a case of Diet Dew that, and I can't remember what the bet was, dot, 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 but here we went. Diet Dew became our currency on Undisputed, so much to the point that my friend Nellie once asked me if a case, quote, unquote, 
was actually code for, for like, say, a grand or like a thousand bucks. He'd, he'd say, you guys, if you bet five cases, is that like five grand on a game? No. It's just due. It's all it is. I, I beat Shannon Sharp so badly that first year that by my birthday on December 4th, he had to wheel out an entire cart filled with Diet Dew to pay me off. Obviously, the company bought that Dew for him, but that's a whole nother story. We've started over on our Dew bets a couple of times, and I believe at this moment I'm up like 70, 70, 70 cases. I also, as you might remember, I won a $500 bet with our man Eric Dickerson, the Rambassador, over the Super Bowl. Eric has offered to take me to dinner in Beverly Hills. That, that would cover it. We haven't been able to click and sync schedules just yet, but we will. But the, the point is, I, I'm really good at picking games against the line. I am. I, I might be even better at negotiating bets with Shannon Sharp. Maybe that's about half the battle on Undisputed. But I'm here to tell you, I have never known anybody, anybody who could consistently make big money betting football or basketball games. If they tell you they do, they are lying to you because I just know it's just too hard. It's too unpredictably crazy. There are too many bizarre bounces. You know this and I know this. As good as I think I am at, at this, there's no way I could make a living if I moved to Vegas. I just couldn't. I'd get too caught up in this and that. I'd get on a roll, then I'd get on, I'd slump. <clears throat> I'd become a problem gambler. I believe I learned a life-saving lesson, life-saving lesson that long ago day in, of all places, Oxford, Mississippi. And if you're listening, Fred Fisher, thank you for saving me from having to call my mom. Mentioned earlier, had a few days off last week. Ernestine and I just randomly, very randomly, this is why I love being with her, we rewatched some of our all-time favorite movies. And I found myself having a few quick new takes on said movies. We watched Caddyshack. I, I don't know. T together, we probably watched it 20 times. So let's say we watched it for the 21st time. What, what shocked me, what hit me right between the eyes was how truly unwatchably bad that Caddyshack sometimes can be, punctuated by how truly, classically, iconically great so many scenes are. But the, the dancing gopher, it, digging up the whole golf course, you see it right from the start. It, it's just, it's cartoonishly dumb. It's not needed. It threatens, to me, to completely derail and, and discredit the entire movie. I've always said about Caddyshack, what I love the most, it gets golf. 
It's smart when it comes to golf, but that is so dumb. The dancing gopher? Where did that come from? What was that all about? And it starts out with an extended Danny Noonan at home scene with all his little brothers and sisters and the mom and the dad, and it goes on and on, and he's caddying and he's saving for college and on and on and on. It's just not necessary. It, it's just boring. His, his love affair that he has, it's, it's just boring. It's not needed. It wastes time. And yet, just when you think, what are you doing? Here comes Rodney Dangerfield, and here comes Bill Murray, and here comes Chevy Chase, and it's Judge Smales, and it's, it's the Bishop, and it's Dr. Beeper, and it's Lacey Underall, and it's just great upon great upon great. I've never watched a movie that was so bad, so unwatchable, and then so great. That's what struck me as we watched it again. Because I'm thinking, what, what were they thinking? And I think, at times, because I've read the book about the making of Caddyshack, I think they are all thinking, what are we thinking? So dumb, but so great. Then Ernestine and I rewatched Heat. It's a great movie. Talk about taut thriller. Talk about intense. Talk about great dialogue. Great action. So real, so gritty, real, so riveting. But what hit home to me upon, I don't know, an eighth or tenth viewing was just how much greater De Niro is in that movie than Pacino. Ernestine loves Pacino because she thinks he's hot. I, I got it. I got it. But in this movie, De Niro, head to head with Pacino, he acts Pacino right under the table they sit at. Robert De Niro can say so much more while, while saying so little than a Pacino who, who is the greatest overactor of this generation, the greatest screaming overactor of this generation. After a while, it gets so annoying, it's just hard to watch. De Niro over Pacino, by far. And finally, we rewatched Die Hard for maybe the 50th time. Seriously, maybe 50 times. Every time I just happen across it when I'm on the treadmill on a Saturday or maybe an early Sunday morning, if Die Hard's on, I'll just start watching it. I know every line of Die Hard, every line. Drive Ernestine crazy, every line. You know what hit me right between the eyes as she and I watched it once again? It gets better every time we watch it. It just does. I could go home right now and watch it again. And by the way, we live in the shadows of what was Nakatomi Plaza. Avenue of the Stars, it's still there. It's a Fox building, big Fox office building. We live in the shadows of it. I drive by it every morning on the way to work. And I could go home right now and repeat every line before they say it. She loves Bruce Willis because he is so hot. He's still in his moonlighting phase. 
I give her that. That's fine. But what a great movie. Back to your questions. Larry from New Orleans asked me, Ugh, do I have a Cowboys license plate frame or a giant star decal on the car window? No, Larry. I'm not a publicly crazed cowboy fan. Not like that. And then again, I guess if I think about it, I do post pictures. Hmm, I do post pictures on Twitter and Instagram of me in cowboy jerseys. I do use those jerseys as good luck charms during games. And yeah, I did purchase two new cowboy jerseys, number 11 and number 88, because as I said earlier, I do believe that Micah Parsons and C.D. Lamb are going to be superstar difference makers this year. I will wear, probably I'll try one jersey in the first half of the Sunday night game against the Bucks. And then if it doesn't work, I'll try the other jersey in the second half. And oh yeah, I will mention that speaking of Vanderbilt back in college, I did once actually purchase, believe it or not, a cowboy trash can. It was a trash can with a big cowboy star on it, a blue metallic blue trash can with a star on it. And man, you want to talk about a Freudian slip? I majored, or I should say I actually minored in psychology. It was close to being a major. And so I was throwing trash in a can with a cowboy logo. Maybe it was my psyche's way of trying to warn me about all the pain that this team would eventually cause me. It may have been that, or maybe it was just, on my account, a cry for help, an early cry for help. I don't know. But maybe it is time. Maybe I should get one of those giant star decals and put it on the window of my car. I'll, that's next. Thank you for that question. And finally, Ethan from Chicago asks, do you know it's been over three years since the Cowboys won a playoff game? Very funny, Ethan, and pretty cruel on your part. Yes, Ethan, I know it has been three years. I know my Cowboys have been to only, or actually they've, they've only won two playoff games in the last 12 years. I know that since they won that last Super Bowl, January of 1996, my Cowboys have the worst playoff record in all the NFL, 4-11. and 11. I know that. I know that my Cowboys have made the playoffs only 11 times in the past 26 seasons. Think about that. Only 11 times in 26 seasons has America's team actually made the playoffs. I know that since they last played in an NFC Championship game, January 14th, 1996, it has been 9,734 days. 9,734 days since my Cowboys even made it to a conference championship game. I know all of that, Ethan, in Chicago. But that is about to change. Yep, you're right. I can't help myself. 
I am plunging yet again. This is the year. I believe in the Madden simulation, which actually has my Cowboys making it all the way to the NFC championship game and losing to New Orleans. I will take that. NFC championship game, here we come. Book it. As I said earlier, I believe we'll lose to Brady in that game, but I believe we will finally play for the first time in to date, 9,734 days. We will play in an NFC championship game. There, I did it. We are doomed. And that is it for episode 32. Thank you for listening and or watching. Thanks so much to Jonathan Berger and his all-pro team for making this show go. Thanks to Tyler Korn for producing. Please remember, Undisputed every weekday, 9.30 to noon Eastern Time, The Skip Bayless Show, every week. <laughs>